Himalayas Studios. I'm the youngest of four, and I came up in a house where I, I did not have what being the youngest of four means, among many other things, is that you so rarely have control over the music that gets played in a car, yeah. in a house, <laughs> right? And then by the time that I was driving myself around, there was no one in the house for me to drive around. And so, um, <laughs> and that creates a kind of joyful isolation, a music fandom that begs this kind of myth that you are the only person loving the music you love in the way you love it. This is poet, essayist, and cultural critic Hanif Abdurraqib. Part of what I really have loved about the past couple of years, past few years, is that I get to put that myth to bed. I get to kind of go out into the world and have someone be like, I read this thing you wrote about this band, and I experienced them in that way too. Or something that has really bugged me out over the past couple of years, she would be like, yo, you wrote about this show. I was at that show, you know? And I'm not talking about like arena shows, right? I'm talking about like yeah. shows where there were like 100 people, 50 people in the room. And, and that has been so fulfilling. And now Hanif has a new way of building communion with people who follow his work as the host of the latest season of KCRW's Lost Notes, which he fully curated. The show centers around great untold stories from the music industry. And this season focuses on a single year, 1980. From Elias Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. This week, How to Love Critically with Hanif Abdurraqib. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Now, let me just say right off the bat, I love this season of Lost Notes. It's gorgeous. But I'll admit, I had some reservations going into the series. 1980 doesn't really stand out, to me at least, like a year with a clear hook that embodied a cultural shift. So I landed on 1980 for a couple reasons. One, because, you know, I I think, of course, we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of a lot of the musical happenings or all the musical happenings in that year. But because I also thought 1980 presented a real opportunity to examine the way music happens and it doesn't just happen in a vacuum that there are a series of conditions that lead to the way that music is created and consumed and Mm. i felt like 1980 had a real strong rash of stories that leaned into that idea what were the major themes that you were sort of thinking about when you settled on 1980 and also started looking through stories i thought that it would be largely a series about grief and loss and Hmm. uh 
rebuilding and reinvention. And I suppose in some ways it still is. But the first idea we had was the the John Lennon Darby Crash story, mm. just because for me that was so unique and so heartbreaking in in some ways. But Darby Crash died on December seventh, nineteen eighty. By the time the news of his death began to circulate, it was well into December eighth. While Mark David Chapman paced outside of John Lennon's apartment with a record, Darby Crash was being pulled lifeless from a house. While word was spreading around the L.A. punk scene about Crash's death, Lennon was signing his name on his eventual killer's record. And while radio stations in Los Angeles began to start their marathon of germ songs, John Lennon lay dying in New York at the doorway to his apartment. News and radio stations broke away to deliver what must have seemed like a larger, more urgent heartbreak. But then, you know, some other things, as I began to kind of go down this road, some other things materialized, like the Hugh Masekela and Marion McCabe story, then going back to Lesotho in 1980, December 1980, to play what was effectively a homecoming concert. And, mm. you know, Grace Jones making the first of her Compass Point albums. Those things kind of organically fit into what I was trying to do. And it, I mean, it helped to not make an entire series about grief and loss and tragedy and, and to offer something beyond that. It felt compelling, too, to kind of tell some stories of how people reinvented themselves or how a quest for infamy, like someone like Darby Crash, how a yeah. quest for infamy can kind of be derailed by a greater loss. And think a little bit, too, about legacy. You know, I, I think that I spent a lot of time thinking about an artist's legacy and, and how difficult it is to have full control over that. Yeah, that was the thing that really stood out to me. Uh, for me, that Darby Crash John Lennon story is one of the starkest examples of just how tricky legacies can be. Darby Crash, the former lead singer of the punk band Germs, takes his own life because he thought he would achieve cultural immortality. And, and then it happens just a day before Lennon was shot and killed in New York City, which completely overshadows Darby's story in the media. So Darby had this plan of how he would be remembered, and there's just no way you can plan for that. And this goes for music artists create too, right? Like, you hope that people are on the same page as you, but but you can't be certain. Well, you know, the whole thing is that you can't control the way the music is received when it enters the world, right? And you can't control the way that you are perceived as the creator of the music once the music is in the world. And so it always and forever strikes me as this really fascinating thing that someone like Darby Crash wanted to determine his own legacy and he thought his death would do that for him. His inability to kind of be alive and move through the world anymore would present an opportunity for his legacy to be defined by his absence. But even that plan was flawed, you know? But I also think about, you know, Secret Life of Plants, Stevie Wonder thought he was doing something that no one else could have thought to do you know he was creating a soundscape for a movie he was incapable of visually watching research conducted in the soviet union leads scientists to believe that plants may think attached to delicate electronic instruments a cabbage plant registers annoyance to the exhaling of tobacco smoke on its leaf surfaces enamored with the idea Wonder had the film's producer, Michael Braun, describe each image in the film to him. This allowed Wonder to take the task of creating the film's score 
translating the descriptions into sound. The Secret Life of Plants album is compositionally as ambitious as anything else Wonder had attempted. The moods of some songs shift rapidly from sparse and airy acoustics to large, sweeping synthesizer arrangements. Other songs shift in glacial movements in an attempt to mirror the slow growth cycle of a plant. And it's an achievement, but when it entered the world, it did not get treated that way. And so part of one's legacy, I think, is not only how do you create, but how do you react to a world that might not always be as excited about your creations as you are. So when we talk about legacy, uh, we are often also talking about death. So for example, like John Lennon's last album, Double Fantasy. There's that thing in the Darby Crash John Lennon episode where I talk about, which and this is something I didn't know that this happened to the extent that it did, where the Double Fantasy reviews have come out when John Lennon was still alive and they were pretty lukewarm. I mean, even yeah. saying they're lukewarm might be generous. You know, they were, they were pretty bad. Um, and then after John Lennon passed, those reviews got pulled and new ones got dropped in you know, new, more glowing ones got dropped in. And I, that felt really complicated to me. I don't know if the best way to honor someone is to not be honest about how we feel about their creative output, even in the yeah. immediacy after their loss, especially someone as titanic as John Lennon, who undoubtedly had and has a body of work that is imperfect, but, you know, still pretty packed with more brilliance than I think some of his peers. And so that made me start to think, too, about what does the critic owe the dead? What does the fan of music owe the dead, if anything? And I think we owe them the same honest affection, keyword honest, you know, honest affection that we would give when they were alive. I think if you genuinely love an artist and have loved an artist for a long time, you have maybe even unintentionally prepared for a world without them in it. I can't count the amount of years that I had thought about how hard it would be to lose little Richard. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that I had pre-written little Richard's eulogy, but it means that when someone dies for me, it's easy to unlock that box where I'd kind of stored all that predetermined grief and all that predetermined celebration and all that predetermined yeah. kind of memory and history. And, and sometimes that's complicated in the, in the stories of, of most of the musicians who die. It's never smooth. It's never easy. Yeah. If you have a real genuine connection with the musician, it stands to reason to me that you have perhaps already prepared to mourn them as they get up in age, as you live alongside them and they increase in age. So when you're doing a piece like this that looks backwards, are you to some extent mourning that time or like you're mourning that version of that artist? I think somewhat. I mean, I, I think you can mourn a version of what an artist was and still make space in your mind, heart for what an artist is capable of being. I was thinking about that last Leonard Cohen album and how much I loved it and how my affection for it existed in part because I had made space for what Leonard Cohen was still capable of being at that point in his life. The last Bowie album, you know I mean? These are people who kind of made records on the way out intentionally or unintentionally. And yeah. those records resonate because with any luck, there was still space for the world to not only see those artists as they were, but offer a, a space for them to be who they are. Tribe Called Quest is another one who like made a late career comeback album, and it really resonated, I think, in part because people were open to receiving 
the growth of that artist. They hadn't cut off, their imagination hadn't cut that artist off at what their highest point had been. And I think we really, um, if we're lucky, we really owe that to our artists. Do you think that the concept uh, of a legacy has changed in the 21st century as opposed to like the 70s, 80s, 90s when we weren't living in this overly connected media world? Yeah, I mean, I also think that people just have shorter memories kind of around musicians, (laughs) in particular, you know, musicians and athletes. But I think it's because we see so many different versions of them in our lifetimes and we see it in a way that feels more touchable because of how the internet is. And I know he's a a bit of a hot button topic and I don't know how much I actually want to get into him as a person. Uh, But I think about how many times, like how many different Kanye Wests have I seen in my lifetime? Hmm. And that's someone who I, you know, like a lot of people got first familiar with like 20 years ago and 20 years is not that long of a time, you know? And in that 20 years, he has shaped and reshaped himself. And so his legacy has become different things. And the way that people cling to his legacy has has become different. And he is not even 45 years old. And so... That's um, crazy to just crack my head around that that, that fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, he, yeah. when I talk about legacy, I, I talk about widening an ability to understand that the things we love are not always going to go down easy, but that doesn't mean that we have to love them less. So to what extent do you think about your legacy? as a person who puts things out into the world. I don't, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I don't know that I do. I think that if I'm lucky, this is a good question in one that caught me off guard admittedly because I don't think about my own legacy much. <laughs> um, you know, if I'm lucky, I, I, I hope that I'll be thought of as someone who tried to corral my excitements and deliver them in a way that maybe offered some excitement to other people. I would like to perhaps be remembered as a conduit for secondhand excitement. But more than that, I'm just someone who loves music. I'm a fan of music. And I think that so much of my writing life has been dedicated to tearing down the hierarchy between critic on high, dictating to the masses and the masses, right? I think that what most excites me is the idea that I'm just a fan who is existing alongside other fans. And with any luck, we can kind of walk hand in hand towards some revelations about things we love or things we don't yeah. know we love yet. So that's the that's the thing about your work that like I'm I'm so drawn to is that you you're not just like such a like a good fan or a listener or or an audience member. Um, it's it's like you're you're really good at loving something. And I guess I have no idea how to phrase this question other than to ask like, how do you love something the way that you do? It's interesting because I do hear this about myself, my work a lot. And I think that, you know, without getting too deep into like a therapy session here, um, I think that I fail, I fail and have failed in love in a great many ways in my life. And so it isn't lost on me that I think what I am doing, I'm in some ways loving the easy thing or I'm loving something that does not feel insurmountable or immovable to me because mm. I understand that love as fleeting in a way that is not going to be as painful as some of the other ways that love has been fleeting in my life. And so I think if I am good at loving things, it's because I want to keep things close while I can and, and while I still feel good about them. Hmm. I, I'm not saying that I believe in music as disposable. 
obviously. And I'm not saying that I believe in music as something I can throw away. What I'm trying to get at is that the music I love the most is music that has altered my life, has altered the lives of people around me, and music that has been the bridge to my loving the world better than I could without it. And so I want to keep that close, but I have to do it understanding that the bridge has already been built, and I'm thankful for the bridge. Coming up, what do artists owe their fans? The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com slash sweeps. LAist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. I think one reason I respond really strongly to your work is how you generally approach music and culture as a fan, rather than as someone who's like more removed from the work. Uh, I can empathize with that, but it, it makes me think about how nowadays there are so many types of fandoms, and there's also been the rise of stands, like really intense super fans. In your mind, what is the difference between a fan and a stan? As someone who's not really a stan of much myself, um, hmm. I do think that being a stan, you're on the front lines, it appears, at least from a distance, in a way that can reduce nuance and clarity, but also can be fulfilling. I'll say this, you know, like, I get that there are ways that, particularly online, stan culture can be toxic and not necessarily fulfilling for everyone. But man, I also just like, so many of the folks who are immersed in it are young folks who are excited about an artist or a band and who are reaching for connection with other young folks through the music they love. And there's something about that on, at, on its face that feels really beautiful to me and feels really yeah. not entirely unlike things that I did when I was younger. I just didn't have the same type of platforms that a lot of younger fans have now. In some ways, I admire that. I still feel very connected to that. I came up on these hardcore scenes, these punk scenes, where you are defined in part by your connection half to the music but half to the people and yeah. and so i don't ever want to let that go and i don't ever want to discourage that yeah no i mean i think i asked that question largely because like i am a little bit envious sometimes of people who can sort of feel that way still <laughs> and part of it is age maybe but also part of it is like i think maybe some of life experiences such that like i can no longer really fully 100 percent believe in anything anymore you know, there's a little bit of self-protection that happens if, with somebody who's, like, uh, skeptical of stand culture in some sort of way. Being able yeah. to sort of love critically, I feel like, is the hardest component of this. It's like, I, I don't know how else to do it because mm. I don't know if I can live a life or in a world where I demand accountability out of myself, out of the people I love, out of my 
internal communities and then put on only rose-colored glasses to look at the things I have affection for, you know? And sometimes the last Slater Kinney album is a really great starting point for me to consider this, right? So the last mm. Slater Kinney album, I love Slater Kinney. I feel like that is a defining, you know, Slater Kinney for me is one of the five greatest bands of all time. And the last Slater Kinney album just wasn't hidden for me. And I think my first instinct was like, oh, I'm so disappointed and I'm so whatever, whatever. But then I was like, you know, I think a real way to look at this critically and generously is to say, one, first off, in my lifetime, I've gotten more great Slater Kinney albums than anyone could ask for from any band they love. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But what does a band like Slater Kinney owe? They don't really owe me their stagnation, you know? If it's a question of, this band is growing and growing in a direction that I can no longer chart with them on. At least the band's grown, you know, like no band owes any of us this kind of stagnant nature. I mean, no one was demanding that out of Prince, you know, even as people like were hand wringing over Prince's many evolutions, there was still shit on those Prince albums that like none of his peers could pull off. And so that's kind of how I think about critical generosity, which doesn't mean I have to love everything. I can come down firmly on the side of this isn't for me, if I love a band and have loved a band for a while and an artist for a while, it allows me to kind of broaden the generosity I'm able to give them. So do you think an artist or a cultural figure ever owes something to the audience? You know, the thing that I always have to think through is that I am both someone who is a critic and an art maker. And gosh, I used to be one of those people, you know, I would say around like even as recent as 2016-ish, I was one of those people who was like, when is this artist going to put out another album? You know, it'd be like two years. I'd be like, where's the next album? That kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's cool and all until people start asking you when your next book comes out. You know, like it's cool and all until, <laughs> you know, you put out a book in, in 2018 and then 2019 rolls around and people are like, when is your next book coming out? How come your next book is not out? You know what I mean? And then yeah, you start while you're thinking, working on a podcast instead of your book. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and, and then it's like, oh, this isn't hitting, this hitting different now. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's really helped me kind of extend the same grace that I look for as a person who creates things to the people I love who are creating things and to honor process. And so with that in mind, I never think that an artist owes anyone anything, hmm. the public at least. When I start thinking about it like that, it allows me to be so grateful that we get anything, you know? I'm curious, how did you find writing for a podcast, you know, like writing for the ear, different from writing poetry or prose? For me, poetry is a sonic, like writing is a sonic practice. Um, and if we're lucky, we're, you know, if I'm lucky and I get in a good groove, then I am writing for the ear always. Or I'm writing with an understanding that the language is a vehicle through which music can be carried. That felt a little challenging, perhaps, as the pieces got longer, you know, I mean, it bears mentioning that the yeah. format of Lost Notes 1980 was going to be that we had people kind of dropping in and doing interviews and kind of this like thing where I was not the sole voice in, in most of them. But, yeah. you know, COVID happened here in March when we were just getting down to recording. And so recording studios closed and it was kind of like, well, I guess you're just writing these kind of audio essays now, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> This isn't a format I'm normally operating in. And so, and I don't particularly like the sound of my own voice. 
And so uh, hmm. maybe I shouldn't tell say this publicly, but I will. You know, in the draft stages when they were sending the feedback, where it's like, okay, listen to this episode. I would only be able to listen to like little bits of it, and then I, I would just send emails back like, sounds good, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm not trying to hear my own voice. And so honestly, I have. Well, I'm supposed to that you hate the sound of your own voice, and as a person who hates the sound of my own voice, I, I say this because you do a lot of poetry readings. You do a lot of readings in general. That I think isn't that kind of lead it to you hear your voice a lot more often yeah but i don't ever hear my voice the way other people hear my voice you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's a good point, you know, good point in our heads we all sound cool or we all sound i, I do hear my own voice often but i hear it through uh, the, the filter of my own confidence perhaps so all the episodes of lost notes 1980 are out now uh and i'm assuming that you're already working on a bunch of other things uh at the moment what's next for you what are you working on now my next book is called A Little Devil in America, and it comes out in March, and it's it's pretty much wrapped. So for the people asking where my next book is, that's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, your book of essays, right? Yeah, it's a book of essays in celebration of various modes of Black performance. And I'm currently working on uh, 68 to 05, which is this like music archival website that I created, and I'm bringing it to life as best as possible. Yeah, tell me more about 68205, uh, because it seems very cool, but uh, but very ambitious. It's, it is, it's too ambitious, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's an ambitious project that I really believe in, and it, it's in some ways a community project, because I'm not doing any writing of my own on the site. Other people are mm-hmm. doing the writing, and I'm kind of getting to shepherd their writing into the world. But it's also a site where you can scroll through very long playlists and look at old magazine covers and watch old performances on YouTube for every year from 1968 to 2005. I am like doing a big project that I can't yet talk about, but hope to you all talk about soon. And honestly, fam, I'm like, you know, what's wild is this is the first year in a long time where I haven't been spending most of the year working on the book at all. You know, Little Devil was kind of done when the year started, I've had to tweak it a bit, but it's mostly done. And I set out the beginning of this year to be like, this is the year where I am going to spend some time doing projects that are fun to me and then like just relaxing. And I, I think I fulfilled the first half of that with 6805 and Lost Notes and some of this other stuff. But I do need to find time. So the big project I'm working on now is a project of of nothing, the project of emptiness, the project of an empty calendar. I'm going to be at home. I'm going to bake. I'm going to play video games play some piano. I got a piano in the house now, so I'm going to play around on piano a little bit and kind of just stay in bed. God, man, that sounds really good. I know. <laughs> let's hope I get there. That's, that's yeah, like, no, I'm, I'm ready for you, man. I hope you get your nothing. <laughs> my fingers are crossed. It's so close and so far away. Oh, man. Well, uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. No, this is a real joy, Nick. I appreciate it. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. The show is produced by Andreas Wahe, Jessica Elpert, and John Perotti at Rococo Punch. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of Elias Studios.
Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.